Thanks for joining us to listen to the most recent edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing a case from the California Supreme Court that issued a few months ago called the Association for Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs First Superior Court of Los Angeles County. Now, we're going to be talking about the ramifications of that decision, which thankfully I'm going to be referring to simply as ALADS throughout the podcast. The interplay of that decision and Senate Bill 1421, a bill which was enacted earlier this year, and the impact of ALADS and that bill on various issues relating to prosecutorial discovery obligations. I'm going to be joined in this podcast by statewide discovery expert, Santa Clara County Assistant District Attorney David Angel. This podcast will provide 80 minutes of MCLE ethics credits. David, thanks for agreeing to help our listeners wade through some of the thorny discovery issues that were resolved by ALADS, as well as those that remain unresolved. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Why don't we begin with you explaining the the relevant facts that led up to this uh, decision in ALADS? Sure. Uh, In late 2016, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department well, essentially what it did is it was going to compile a Brady list and and send that to uh, the district attorney's office. So what it does is it informs the sheriff's deputies that it had reviewed all of those deputies' personnel records. Then it said it had identified potential exculpatory or impeachment information in those records, and it listed what would qualify as that material. And usually what that meant is there had been an administrative investigation that had been sustained uh, as to certain topics. And then it said, in order to comply with our constitutional obligations, that the department was required to provide the names of the employees with potential exculpatory or impeachment material in their personnel file to the district attorney and other prosecutorial agencies where the employee might be called as a witness. So in other words, they were going to get a list of people, of, of sheriff's deputies, who had had sustained findings of conduct that could constitute Brady or be used for impeachment. Now, it clarified the letter was not going to give any of the actual content of what had been found. So it wasn't going to say, here's what they were Here's the complaint that had been sustained, but it was just going to say a complaint had been sustained that that could trigger a Brady or impeachment uh, obligation on part of the prosecution. And so, therefore, the DA should know about it so that the DA could comply with their Brady obligations. Okay, so what sort of conduct would end up placing a deputy on this list? Well, pretty big things that most prosecutors would definitely want to know about. So sustained findings of immoral conduct bribes or uh, are giving uh, inappropriate gifts or rewards or favors, uh, misappropriation of property, tampering evidence, false statements, um, uh, uh, obstruction of, of investigations, trying to indu- unduly influence witnesses, uh, and also if there have been finding of harassment, unreasonable force findings, or family violence, which presumably means uh, uh, the deputy within his own family had abused someone. So pretty big stuff. 
So what was the response of the deputies to getting this letter? Well, not really good. (laughs) They immediately (laughs) sought an injunction from the trial court. Their argument is that this was a violation of their privacy rights and that the uh, department needed to comply with what we all think of as the pitches procedures in order to disclose even the identity of the deputy. So what what did the trial court rule? Well, it was somewhat of a mixed ruling. Uh, on uh, On the one hand, it said that the department couldn't just give a list to the uh, prosecution's office because it believed that the due, uh, due process and Pitch's statute required that any disclosure be attached to a particular criminal case. Nonetheless, they ruled that the department could give such a list to the uh, the prosecutor's office. So in other words, they could eventually disclose the material, but it would have to be associated with a particular criminal case. Okay, so there had to be a uh, prosecution pending that the deputy was potentially involved in as a potential witness. Exactly. Okay, so what happens after the trial court ruling? Well, the deputy's association was not happy with that ruling, so they appealed it. Uh, in the Court of Appeal, the majority of justices agreed with the trial court, but it held that it would not be proper to disclose the fact a deputy was on the Brady list, even if a deputy was a witness in a pending prosecution. Okay. So we know the case goes up to the California Supreme Court after that. What was the specific issue or issues upon which review was granted? Well, what the Supreme Court said is, uh, and I'll quote from it, they wanted this question answered, or they want to review this question. When a law enforcement agency creates an internal Brady list, and a peace officer on that list as a potential witness in a pending criminal prosecution, may the agency disclose to the prosecution the name and identifying number of the officer, and B, that the officer may have relevant exonerating or impeaching material in that officer's confidential personnel file. So was that the only issue the the court asked the parties to address? Well, what happened was, uh, so no, because what happened was after the enactment of Senate Bill 1421, which you alluded to earlier, and this gives access to everyone by the way of a public record request, uh, certain portions of a peace officer's personnel file uh, that had previously been protected by the Pitches statute. So the California Supreme Court asked the parties to address, well, what impact does this bill have on this case? Okay, so let's talk a little bit now how the California Supreme Court analyzed this issue. David, what was really the crux of the issue? Well, the crux of the issue, as I'm sure as we're all aware of as prosecutors, is on the one hand, we have a constitutional duty um, uh, to uh, provide Brady information, which will include impeachment information. And on the other hand, there are statutory duties protecting peace officers' personnel files. And of course, what I know you've talked about in the past, not just statutory, there's constitutional protections for everyone's personnel file, and then certain statutory requirements for peace officers. So how do we balance the prosecution's duty to disclose to the defense uh, certain evidence that is favorable to the accused, and that would include impeachment information, uh, and that would include impeachment information that, that's known about a, p- a police officer. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, the Pitches statute restricts a prosecutor's ability to learn of and disclose that very same information. Um, now, the way the Sheriff's Department in Los Angeles and many other uh, agencies, certainly uh, ours here in Santa Clara County, chose to uh, resolve that conflict is by creating a Brady list of officers uh, that does not include the content 
uh, of the uh, of the administrative uh, findings, but does at least alert the prosecution that such an issue potentially exists so that they can examine it, you know, they can explore it further. So they're indicating that there may be some Brady material, which, of course, is not simply just favorable, but it might be information that would be both favorable and material in a particular case, which could include impeachment evidence, although obviously a lot of impeachment evidence would not be Brady material. Correct. All right. So did the California Supreme Court find that it was proper for the police department to provide the list of officers to the prosecution? Yes, they they did. And why why is that? Because in previous cases, the California Supreme Court and numerous appellate courts had held that peace officer personnel files were third party records. In other words, they retained their confidentiality as much uh, as to the prosecution as to anyone else absent a pitches motion. Since placement on the list would indicate an officer had potential Brady material in their file, and this fact was derived from personnel files that were confidential, why wasn't the list considered confidential, a third-party record that, that the prosecution could not access or learn about? And why wasn't the disclosure to the prosecutor considered a breach of that confidentiality? Well, this is where the decision, I think, is somewhat uh, complicated. And the reason is, in many ways, this decision did not grapple or answer these questions directly, but kind of took an indirect uh, and sometimes very complicated route uh, to get where where they wanted to go. So the first thing that the court began to uh, consider in this case is to say, the placement on the list and disclosure of an individual's officer's name did not necessarily mean there was any breach of the Pitches statute. How so? Well, because that's the impact of 1421. Now, you might recall 1421 is the, is the law that was recently passed uh, that removed Pitches protection – in other words, the confidentiality protections of certain sort of information that's in the personnel file. So SB 1421 amends Penal Code Section 832.7, which is the pitches process. And what it does is it renders information contained that, that, that information that it that had previously been considered confidential would now no longer uh, be deemed non-confidential, I mean confidential. And therefore, how could there be a uh, confidentially right under pitches if you no longer had it under 1421? Now, of course, SB 1421 didn't eliminate the confidentiality of everything in a peace officer's personnel file, just a limited number of kinds of records. What kinds of records were no longer deemed confidential by the passage of the Senate Bill 1421. Yeah, that's a very important point to remember uh, because a lot of times I think people misunderstand 1421 and think it's completely removed all protections for uh, peace officer personnel records, and that's not true at all. It's actually a fairly narrow uh, a list of, of, of events that have been stripped of privacy protections. So probably the broadest is uh, involves officers' use of force. So essentially, whenever an officer discharges a firearm at another person during the course of duty or uses force against a person that results in death or great bodily injury, all the records relating to that uh, incident are essentially going to be are, are no longer protected by uh, pitches in any case, and to a great degree are now going to have to be made public if they weren't before. The second category relates to sustained findings, and these are actually um, 
similar but not identical to the one that you'll recall us discussing with the sheriff department letter because it's pretty it's pretty um major events that have been uh, uh, stripped of their privacy. And remember, these are only sustained findings. So in other words, if a, um, a department uh, sustains a finding of dishonesty um, uh, or um, other forms of misconduct, perjury, false statements, filing of false reports, destruction and falsifying of evidence, concealing evidence, uh, and other, you know, topics such as uh, uh, engaging in sexual assault involving members of the public, things like that are going to uh, have to be disclosed, which I'll also add are things that usually officers would probably be terminated for doing in, in, in most agencies. And they're definitely things prosecutors would need to know about. If you had an, uh, a witness who had tampered with evidence in another case, obviously you're going to need to know about that. Okay, so... Uh the court found that any portion of the Brady list that was based on these types of records was not confidential. And the Pitcher Statutes doesn't even restrict dissemination of these records to the public, let alone the district attorney's office, to the extent this list was based on personal records falling into these categories. So the court found the list of uh, the, the Brady list was not confidential? No. So this is where it got very tricky because the court said, well, look, if they're on the list for something uh, that is no longer confidential pursuant to 1421, well, clearly there's no breach of confidentiality to share it. But officers can be placed on a Brady list uh, for a much broader category of uh, uh, events that are necessarily covered under 1421. So to the extent that they were on the list for something that's not covered by 1421, the court held that was still confidential. Even though placement on the list didn't reveal any of the specifics of the information, in other words, the sheriff's department would know why they were placed on the list, but just giving a Brady tip wouldn't let anyone know anything about the underlying conduct. Yes, that's true, but what the, the court just disagreed with this premise because essentially said what's private is the fact that the whole thing is private. So saying that you've been subject to discipline uh, that was sustained really breaches that confidentiality. And the way I think of that sometimes uh, myself is like the medical records. If you said, oh, their medical records are confidential, but I want to let you know they've uh, received psychiatric care, well, you've disclosed a lot about their medical uh, records. It's it's really not confidential to say, you know, here's Here's something that they did, but I'm not going to tell you the details. It's an excellent analogy, David. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the list could have included both confidential and non-confidential information. Yes. And because the Supreme Court cannot say the list was entirely non-confidential, nor was it uh, uh, entirely confidential, um, it said because there was partial confidentiality, that doesn't strip the remainder list of its confidential status. So in other words, the court said, we're going to assume the whole list is confidential. So the court found disclosure of the list to the prosecution was not proper. No. <laughs> they, as I said, there are a lot of twists and turns in this decision. Uh, when I was reading it at that point, I thought, goodness, they're now going to say you can't disclose it. But that's not what they said. Why not? Well, because they concluded that the confidentiality of the list did not prevent the limited sharing of such information with prosecutors. The court reasoned that the shield of confidentiality extended to the personnel file was not so impermeable 
that it precluded disclosure of the limited Brady alerts to the prosecutor when an officer who is a potential witness in a pending criminal prosecution may have relevant exonerating or impeaching material in that officer's confident, uh, confidential personnel file. So how do they get to, to that conclusion? Well, it gets a little complicated, and you might say it already was complicated, <laughs> but it gets a little more so, and it leaves several open questions um, that really could have been very easily resolved by the court had it simply held there's a due process obligation on the part of the police to disclose known material impeachment of a witness, whether it's a peace officer or someone else. Uh, it, it, and the reason for that would be so prosecutors could meet their own due process constitutional obligations. But uh, it, 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 it chose not to take the most direct route and went there somewhat uh, indirectly. Yeah, I mean, it was just really so easy to do this. Just say, okay, we know there's a due process obligation on the part of police officers to inform DAs of information that could be potentially a Brady, and that whatever statute you come up with, you don't get to trump that constitutional duty. But well, I should they, say, I suspect they're going to arrive there eventually. Uh, one interesting thing is that even though this is a core criminal discovery issue, uh, as you had pointed out earlier. It was in an odd procedural posture because it's a civil case. So they were really analyzing it under a different rubric. So I would not advise anyone uh, coming to the conclusion that the court does not want to or will not reach this more direct conclusion when that issue is presented. Okay, but until then, uh, we got we're, we're kind of stuck with the rationale that they did use. Yes. So, what was the rationale that they did use to come to their ultimate conclusion? Well, the interesting thing there is they start off by backing away a bit from earlier decisions, uh, such as Johnson and others, that basically said, "Hey, this is like third party discovery, and the prosecution and defense have equal access to the pitches files." To the pitches files. Okay. They said that viewing the pitches statues against the larger background of the prosecutor's Brady obligation that disclosure of a Brady tip to their prosecutor was not the same disclosure of a Brady tip to anyone else. And though, although the court did not expressly state this, they said such disclosure is no different from one government agency's needing to disclose information protected by the official information privilege to another government agency to allow both agencies to carry out their duties. So yeah. in other words, they distinguish between disclosure between government agencies uh, as opposed to disclosure to the world at large. Or at least uh, they distinguished between prosecutors who have this Brady obligation in and their relationship to police officers than any other kind of agency correct could could go there yeah i mean it's there is this a line of cases talking about how if you have one government agency it can disclose official information to another government agency it's not specifically included in this in this discussion but it's the same basic principle i agree so um it's kind of like when a police officer provides information to a prosecutor about, like, a CI. So the prosecutor can respond to the motion to disclose the CI's identity, but that doesn't mean the CI, the confidential information privilege has been breached, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. But let's move on because it's or, or to another mm -hmm. aspect of it, because that wasn't the only reason the court gave. The court also suggested that allowing limited disclosure of potential Brady information in an officer's personnel file was necessary to ensuring that the Pitchess statutory scheme would not unduly interfere with Brady compliance. So in other words, some people have argued that uh, the Pitchess statute is incompatible with Brady. What the court 
I think was doing here was saying, well, our job is to you know, start with the premise that laws are constitutional. So how can we interpret the Pitches uh, statutes in such a way that it's still constitutional? Well, we can't interpret Pitches uh, as being so, I think the word you were used before was impermeable, that shield, that the, the DA is no longer able to fulfill their Brady obligation. So it tried to give a little bit of, uh, I would say, reasonableness to how we interpret Pitches so it can harmonize with our Brady obligations. So Brady tips can be passed from the police to the prosecutors, notwithstanding the assumed confidentiality of the Brady list. And then the prosecutor can pass on the tip to the defense? Well, not exactly. I wish that was clear. One thing is clear, and probably only one thing is clear from this particular decision looked at in isolation. And that is when an officer is a potential witness in a pending case, so they are a witness in a pending criminal case, the police can give a Brady list, a uh, Brady alert to the prosecutor. But that's all that is crystal clear. So it's not crystal clear that the Brady tips can be passed from the law enforcement agency to the prosecution about an officer when there is no pending case in which the officer is a potential witness. In other words, i.e. in advance of any potential case, uh, in advance of any pending case. Well, Jeff, I know a little later in the podcast, we're going to discuss this very issue and why we think the the answer is yes, when look in the in the kind of context of the other decisions that have come down. But if you're just looking at ALADS and an explicit holding, it is not entirely clear uh, uh, from the decision in ALADS that the Brady list can be disclosed in advance. It, is it even clear that we can pass on Brady tips to the defense without having to comply with the Brady procedures if they've been if they've been given to us? Well, alas, also no. Um, I think they muddied the issue up a bit since it was fairly clear from an earlier California Supreme Court decision, you know, the one in Johnson I referred to earlier, that prosecutors could do so. And of course, Johnson is still good law. So we'll discuss why we think the answer is yes. I still think we can. Uh, as I said, we'll talk about that more later. But the ambiguity arises uh, because of the way the court decided to write about uh, this issue in ALADS. They overlooked the simplest way of deciding the case, which is just to say there's a due process obligation for the police to disclose this to the prosecutor and the prosecutor have a due process obligation to disclose it to the defense. And instead, uh, as I said, they took the somewhat circuitous uh, route to get to their decision. And so they relied on reasoning that does not necessarily support the disclosure of the Brady tip to the defense. But like I said, uh, and we'll delve into this uh, a, a little bit more later in the podcast. Okay, so does the holding in ALEDs require law enforcement agencies, require these agencies to create Brady lists and or provide those lists to the prosecution? Uh, no, it does not directly state uh, that law enforcement agencies must create Brady lists or even provide Brady lists to prosecutors. The ALADS court did, however, strongly suggest that if Brady alerts are not provided, there must be some other mechanism for law enforcement to provide the information to the prosecution. So, for example, they say, I'm going to quote here, the 14th Amendment underlying Brady imposes obligations on the states and their agents, not just derivatively on prosecutors. Law enforcement personnel are required to share Brady material with the prosecution. The association's contrary view that Brady relates only to prosecutor or to the prosecutor and that, quote, Brady does not impose obligations on law enforcement, 
is distressing and wrong. The prosecution may bear ultimate responsibility for ensuring that necessary disclosures are made to the defense, but that does not mean law enforcement personnel have no role to play. This is not to imply that Brady alerts are a constitutionally required means of ensuring Brady compliance, only that disclosure of Brady material is required and that the Brady alerts help to ensure satisfaction of that requirement. So that was from uh, ALADS that was just decided. So in some ways, ALADS dispositively answered the question as to whether there's a due process obligation of the police or law enforcement to provide this information to the district attorney. But because the question before the California Supreme Court was not whether there was a Brady duty on the part of law enforcement to disclose Brady information in an officer's personnel file, the only question was whether it was permitted. The ALADS court did not have to find such a duty existed. But make no mistake, all the necessary groundwork has been laid for expressly finding there's a due process duty on the part of law enforcement agencies or upon the testifying officers themselves to provide favorable and material information located in the personnel file of a testifying officer to the prosecution. So this last is a little bit tricky, but it's an, it, it, but actually, in a way, it's a very simple way of resolving this issue. Think of the reasoning. The same reasoning the ALADS court used to justify why alerts were permitted also supports the notion that law enforcement is required to use Brady alerts or come up with some other equivalent mechanism to alert the prosecution of Brady information in the file. For example, in con explaining why constructing the Pitches statutes to permit Brady alerts best harmonizes Brady and Pitches, the court noted that since prosecutors are deemed constructively aware of Brady material known to anyone on the prosecution team and must share that information with the defense, construing the Pitches statute to cut off the flow of information for law enforcement uh, to prosecutors uh, would be just contrary to their uh, ability, our ability, uh, to comply with Brady. And then later in that decision, the court observes that without Brady alerts, prosecutors may be unaware that a pitches motion should be filed, and such a motion, if filed, might not may not succeed. Thus, interpreting the pitches statute to prohibit Brady alerts would pose a substantial threat to Brady compliance. So in other words, what they're saying is, uh, we're not going to mandate that you have to have a Brady list, but it, it, it sets up a series of requirements that, uh, well, I know you and I have discussed, and I know many prosecutors uh, across California have discussed, and come to the conclusion there's really no way of us, in a practical matter, uh, uh, fulfilling our Brady obligations without a Brady list for the reasons alluded to here. How are we going to know if there's material in their file? How are we going to know if another prosecutor in our office already filed the pitches motion and knew about it? They might be down the hall from you. They might have retired six months ago. But nonetheless, that's just all information that may well be imputed. Uh, so we've come to the conclusion, and this is what the Supreme Court is alluding to, how are you going to possibly do that without some sort of Brady list? Uh, and finally, it would be, uh, and this is, again, just another practical implication, it would be a very onerous burden to impose on a prosecutor a duty to check uh, uh, a personnel file every single time for every single per, uh, personnel officer uh, every time an officer is subpoenaed. I mean, just imagine the number of subpoenas that we have going out for every single case. If the only way we can comply 
because there was no Brady list, would be to file a pitches motion for every single officer. It would be incredibly onerous. And I, and I don't want to belabor this point, but this was something alluded to in Johnson. If the if the obligation were just with the defense, it's pretty simple because they don't actually have to file very many pitches motions because there's not a lot of cases, as we know from experience, where they're actually challenging the, uh, the um, honesty of the officer. That's just not you know, that's not a normal defense. By contrast, we are always uh, uh, counting on the honesty of the officer for our case. So in effect, we might have to file a pitches motion for literally every single officer testified because we believe, of course, that they're telling the truth. So it, it, without a Brady list, it just sets up a huge practical and onerous burden on prosecutors. Yeah. You know, given the number of federal decisions that have specifically held that the police have a duty to provide Brady evidence to the prosecution in general. I think ultimately when the California Supreme Court is confronted with whether or not there is this absolute duty, they're going to find that there is such a duty. And assuming there is some sort of duty on the part of law enforcement to disclose Brady material in an officer's personnel file, does that duty extend to disclosure of potentially impeaching information that is merely exculpatory and not reasonably likely to result in a different verdict if disclosed. In other words, does it just apply to Brady material or does it apply to like any material that might be construed as favorable? Okay, I'm going to, of course, answer this question, but let me just say why I hesitate a little bit is that I think the correct legal answer uh, is that no, it doesn't apply to information that's not Brady. But the practical answer is going to be in most cases, the agencies are really not going to be in a position to distinguish between favorable impeachment information and Brady impeachment information, because remember, they're deciding it in the abstract without knowing what the facts of the particular case are. So I think it's important for us as lawyers and prosecutors to know the law. So I know we'll discuss that. Uh, but I do want to note that as a practical matter, I don't think we're going to get a lot of mileage out of this distinction. Uh, so uh, the, the reason is that... Uh, Unless the, the information is both favorable uh, and material, uh, uh, there's no obligation to disclose it unless it falls into one of the categories of evidence covered by, uh, you know, 832.7. Okay. So the, when we talk about 832.7, we're talking about subdivision B, where, yeah, that, those records have to be disclosed no matter what, essentially. There's no protections. We don't have to draw a distinction between... Uh, information that we have a statutory duty to provide and information that we're constitutionally obligated to provide. But uh, when it comes to privileged or protected information, we do have to draw that distinction because we can't willy-nilly turn over privileged or protected material unless there is a higher compelling interest in disclosure that's required by Brady. So why do you think that um, there wouldn't be uh, – why do you think we can draw this distinction? Why, why is there a distinction between evidence that we're required to provide by statute that might be in the personnel file and evidence that we are constitutionally required to disclose? Well, uh, partly for the, uh, I would say, almost the, the, the legal and ethical reasons that you alluded to in your question, that when you're, when you're balancing a constitutional privacy right, uh, you, you can't just willy-nilly disclose things. But there's also fairly grounded uh, statutory reasons, and uh, that's because courts are precluded from, and I'm going to quote here, broadening the scope of discovery 
beyond that provided in the chapter or other express statutory provisions or is mandated by the federal constitution and penal code section 1054.6. So uh, in other words, uh, you know, the, the courts can't just uh, uh, expand discovery obligations beyond what's required by the Constitution or what's already in our uh, discovery statutes. And when it comes to materials that are privileged, uh, you know, that those can't be disclosed, uh, uh, as you said, willy-nilly. And evidence which is privileged or under an express statutory provision is not subject to disclosure even if it is exculpatory, as that term is defined in Penal Code Section 1054.1e, which you'll recall from other discovery uh, uh, podcasts and our, and our um, own um, uh, study, you know, there's a difference between constitutional uh, exculpatory evidence, which is has to be material, and statutory, which is not modified by materiality. Uh, so if if it's merely exculpatory, not material and exculpatory, then it can only be disclosed if it's otherwise protected as mandated by the Constitution of the United States. So the only disclosure of evidence that is mandated by the federal Constitution is favorable material evidence under Brady. Information in an officer's personnel file is protected by the privilege created by Penal Code Section 832.7, which protects the records from disclosure happens absence compliance with the pitches procedure, which you find in Evidence Code 1043. Now, the rule might be different now, though, when it comes to the limited information that is no longer confidential as a result of the passage of SB 1421. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, as we discussed earlier, 1421 removed the confidentiality of information in officer's personnel file that falls in, you know, to those categories, and thus it's likely that 1421 21 also removes the privileged nature of those specific record, rec, records. And this now raises a new issue, which uh, no case has yet addressed. Oh, care to elaborate, David Angel, purveyor of wisdom? <laughs> Absolutely. Mr. Ruin, Rubin, seeker of wisdom. Um, Penal Code Section 1054.1e requires the prosecution to provide all exculpatory evidence, not just evidence that is material under Brady and its progeny, right? So we as we said, statutory is broader than constitutional. But while many federal courts have held that the police have an obligation to disclose Brady information to prosecutors, there do not appear to be cases requiring the disclosure of information that is not Brady, but is nonetheless exculpatory. Moreover, the prosecution does not have a duty to disclose evidence that is only statutorily required to be disclosed unless the prosecution is in actual possession of that information. And that's going to be a a crucial distinction that we'll discuss later. This is because the California Supreme Court has recognized in Section 1054.1 that limits the disclosure obligation to materials and information that the prosecuting attorney knows it to be in the possession of the investigating agencies. And thus far, no court has expressly imposed a statutory duty upon law enforcement to disclose unprivileged evidence that is not required to be disclosed by the federal constitution. However, if there is such a statutory duty imposed on law enforcement, then law enforcement should probably assume there's a reasonable possibility that they may be re required to provide not only alerts or tips to the prosecution uh, regarding Brady material, but also non-Brady 
exculpatory impeachment evidence that is no longer privileged because it falls under one of the categories of reports described in subdivision B of section 832.7. Just so it's clear, non-Brady exculpatory impeachment evidence that remains privileged is not disclosable without compliance with the Pitcher statutes. Correct. Assuming there's a duty on the part of law enforcement to disclose Brady material in an officer's file, does ALAD suggest there was also a duty on the part of the prosecution to request such information from the law enforcement agencies? Okay, well, so before ALADS was issued, it was fairly clear that as long as the prosecution was not already aware of the information contained in the peace officer's personnel file. So again, I want to repeat that because that's so important. As long as we weren't already aware of the information, then there was no obligation to either file a pitches motion or ask law enforcement about the information contained in an officer's personnel file because those files were not deemed to be in constructive possession of the prosecution. Rather, Pitch's files were treated as third-party records. That means not possessed by the prosecution team. And there's no constitutional or statutory duty to seek out exculpatory evidence or information from third parties. This approach was largely affirmed by the California Supreme Court in the, in the recent 2015 case of People v. Superior Court Johnson, which we call the Johnson's decision. And what did that decision involve? Okay, so that case, Johnson, arose when the prosecution received a Brady tip from the San Francisco Police Department that a potential Brady information existed in the officer's personnel file. So in other words, a classic Brady list, Brady tip situation. The the, uh, prosecution gets a tip, this officer may have uh, Brady material in their personnel file, and no further information was uh, disclosed by the law enforcement except for that tip. Now, then based on this tip, the people filed their own uh, Brady pitches motion to obtain the file, but the trial court Uh, This was the San Francisco Trial Superior Court, refused to hear the motion, and that had another long, fairly complicated uh, procedural history, but eventually made its way to the California Supreme Court, and the, the Supreme Court wanted two interrelated questions answered. One, may the prosecution examine the records itself to determine whether they contain exculpatory information? In other words, the trial court had suggested that the prosecution could just themselves take the personnel files themselves and review it and decide if there's any Brady information in there. Um, So the first question is, could prosecutors do that? Or must prosecutors, like criminal defense attorneys, follow the procedure the legislature established for pitches motions? And then two, what must the prosecution do with this information uh, once it has it to fulfill its Brady duty? This gave the California Supreme Court the opportunity to address the question of whether Pitch's files are considered records within the possession of the prosecution team or should be treated as third-party records for purposes of deciding whether the prosecution had an obligation to review such files for potential Brady information. Did Johnson answer that question? Well, not directly, although it gave us some guidance. The Johnson court did not directly answer the question of whether officer personnel files were in constructive possession of the prosecution. If, if we have constructive per, uh, possession of them, then we have a, an obligation to review them, right? It didn't directly answer that. Instead, it resolved the case on different grounds, albeit ones suggesting the files were third-party records. The Johnson court pointed out that a violation of due process, i.e. a Brady violation, can only occur if the evidence has been suppressed by the state, either willfully or even, as we know, inadvertently. 
but that evidence is not suppressed if the defendant has access to the evidence prior to trial by the exercise of reasonable diligence. They then explain that since the prosecution and the defense have equal access to confidential personnel records of police officers or witnesses in criminal cases, there could be no Brady violation if information contained in the file was not disclosed, and here's the key, so long as the prosecution provided what information they did have to the defense. The Johnson court also affirmed that the Pitchess procedure is in essence a special in instance of third-party discovery and that the prosecution does not have access to confidential, confidential personnel records absent compliance with the Pitchess procedures. And then the court concluded that under these circumstances, permitting defendants to seek Pitchess discovery fully protects their due process rights under Brady to obtain discovery of potentially exculpatory information located in confidential personnel records. The prosecution need not do anything in these circumstances beyond providing to the defense any information it has regarding what the records might contain. In this case, informing the defense what the police had in, a department had informed it. This language is consistent with the position that the prosecution has no discovery obligations to seek out information and personnel files unless they've been provided a Brady tip. And even then, providing that tip to the defense suffices to meet the prosecution's discovery obligation. So bottom line, David... Under Johnson, under the holding in Johnson, there is no obligation to either file a pitches motion or ask law enforcement about information contained in an officer's personnel file unless uh, we actually know that there's such information there. Well, that's under Johnson. Under Johnson, maybe. The decision in ALADS pretends a shifting approach to the question of whether prosecutors are in construction, constructive possession of Brady information in an officer's file, or put another way, whether there's a duty to inquire with the agency uh, or the officer about whether such information exists. The ALADS court did not hold that prosecutors are in constructive possession of Brady information in personnel files. However, the ALADS court appeared to back away from its earlier view that such files were being treated solely as third-party records when it was discussing why it rejected the claim that when a law enforcement agency maintains information about a peace officer in the personnel file, it is acting in administrative, not an investigative capacity. The ALADS court recognized that if an agency has no connection to the investigation, uh, uh, or prosecution of the criminal charge against the defendant, the agency is not part of the prosecution team. And therefore, the prosecutor does not have a duty to search for that information uh, or disclose it. However, the Elites Court then went on to indicate that if the personnel file belongs to an officer on the prosecution team, or if we're aware of the information, it does not follow that information in an officer's confidential personnel file categorically falls outside the Brady duty to disclose. The ALADS court said that even if one assumes that a law enforcement agency is not a member of the prosecution team when acting in its capacity as custodian of records, it may be that others who clearly are on the prosecution team are aware of the existence and content of those records. A prosecutor, for example, may know from a prior pitches motion that a confidential file contains Brady information regarding an officer involved in a pending prosecution. Moreover, the correspondence sent to deputies in the case served to remind them about information in their own records, reflecting the fact that an officer will often, 
if not always, be aware of the contents of the officer's own confidential file. Thus, even assuming that custodians are not necessarily part of the prosecution team, it does not follow that confidential personnel records are categorically unknown to members of the team. But in the footnote attached to the paragraph that you're just quoting from, the court didn't follow through to the arguably logical conclusion of its analysis. Instead, they said, we need not hold that all information known to officers is necessarily within the scope of the Brady duty. For now, it is enough to say that records connected to officers' discipline cannot categorically be excluded from that duty. True, but I think the paragraphs at least strongly suggest that if not if not demands that if a prosecutor is aware of Brady information in an officer's personnel file, the prosecutor cannot sit on it and pretends a future decision where the court expressly holds that Brady information in a peace officer's personnel file is constructively in the possession of the prosecution if that peace officer is deemed to be on the prosecution team. You know, I agree. After all, I mean, if the prosecution is clearly deemed to be in possession of evidence impeaching a civilian witness that's only known to the investigating officer, which case law makes clear they clearly are, how can the prosecution not be deemed to be in possession of evidence in an officer's personnel file known to the investigating officer that impeaches his or her own credibility or the credibility of a fellow investigator who's on the prosecution team? And, you know, in fact, there are cases from out of state coming to this exact conclusion. Suffice to say... ALADS moves the needle closer to the point where such an obligation is likely to be imposed. And prosecutors' offices that do not set up a Brady Bank to keep track of information and personnel files that have been passed on to a prosecutor uh, in the office at some point uh, and, and don't set up a Brady tip type of system where it's equivalent with uh, police agencies to allow a prosecutors to be alerted to information and files that may be unknown to prosecutors but are known to, to members of the prosecution team, you know, are resting their convictions on shifting sands. I, I agree. I think it would be dangerous. Can law enforcement provide the Brady list to prosecutors, even though officers named on the list are not currently designated as a witness in a pending trial? Probably, but ALADS did not decide that question. In the Johnson case we discussed earlier, the California Supreme Court appeared to approve of the Brady tip procedures used by the San Francisco Police Department to alert prosecutors to the existence of potential Brady information in the officer's file. They specifically said it was a, a laudable procedure. Okay. The court even saw fit to attach the policy of the protocol as an appendix to their opinion, which would strongly suggest that they were aware of it and approved of it, what with them attaching it and saying it was laudable. And, that, po and that policy didn't condition disclosure uh, of the Brady tip to the prosecution or placement of the officer on the list based on the officer being uh, a pending case. No. Uh, being a witness in a pending case. Uh now, did ALADS retreat from that approval? No, it did not retreat from this approval, but it did create some ambiguity as to the permissibility of a police department providing a Brady tip to the district attorney's office for inclusion on a list in advance of a pending prosecution in which the officer was a potential witness. It created this ambiguity by limiting its holding to the conclusion, quote, that the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department does not violate Section 832.7a by sharing with prosecutors the fact that an officer who is a potential witness in a pending criminal prosecution may have relevant exonerating or impeaching material in that officer's confidential personnel file. So 
I think we can expect at least some police departments to argue that absent a pending case, there can be no Brady obligation to disclose, which was the position adopted by the trial court in ALADS. However, given the Johnson court's earlier approval of the San Francisco Police Department protocol and recognition of the rationale behind it that and again, I'll quote from that decision, repetitive requests by the district attorney that the police department check employee personnel files of department employees who may be witnesses creates unnecessary paperwork and personnel costs. The holding in ALAD should not be interpreted as precluding the creation of a list by prosecutor's office based on Brady tip information provided by the police department regarding officers who might testify to the uh, in the future. And to the contrary, the ALADS court recognized that prosecutors must have a mechanism for ensuring compliance with their Brady obligation. Look, if prosecutions, if prosecutors cannot effectively and practically meet our Brady obligations without asking the police department to provide a list of officers with potential Brady material in advance so that each time a case needs to be subpoenaed, uh, all but only the officers with such material in their personnel file can be flagged. Then there should be no barrier to providing that limited information to anyone. Yeah, I mean, there was also an attorney general opinion that basically came to this same conclusion. I want to just go back for a second and clarify that uh, the position that you, we might expect some of these police departments to take was not the position of the trial court. It was actually the position of the appellate court. Um, but we have this... Uh, Johnson case, we have the attorney general opinion saying that you can release this information without without requiring a pending prosecution, but um, ALADS didn't you know, specifically say that it was okay. Um, can prosecutors disclose the Brady alert provided to them by law enforcement to defense counsel without complying with the Pitchess procedures? Well, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Johnson case, uh, the California Supreme Court approved of the, that process because they approved of the protocol used by the San Francisco Department. And under that protocol, the understanding was the prosecution was to notify the defendant uh, that the, well, the defendant's attorney, that the officer's personnel records might contain Brady material. However, notwithstanding this apparent approval, in ALADS, the California Supreme Court muddied up the question of whether such Brady alerts by the prosecution to the defense would be permitted by specifically declining to, quote, address whether it would violate confidentiality for a prosecutor to share an alert with the defense, end quote. I'm kind of laughing because that was the whole premise of Johnson, so it's sort of strange that they muddied the waters in ALADS. Yeah. Well, why did they decline to address the question in ALADS? Why did they indicate it's an open question? Well, I suspect that part of this reluctance to address the question might stem from the fact that one of the rationales given for allowing Brady tips to provided to the prosecution in ALADS is not equally applicable to provisions of Brady tips to defense counsel. But that said, I think providing the Brady tips remains proper. Why do you think that, notwithstanding the openness of the question that was intimated in ALADS? Well, because in the same sentence, declining to address the question of whether prosecutors can share these Brady alerts with the defense, that ALADS court cited to the page in Johnson where it stated that providing the defense with whatever information had been provided by law enforcement sufficed to meet the Brady obligation. 
That should provide adequate support for continuing to allow Brady tips to be given to the defense when the prosecution and defense have similar access to the privilege record once the alert is provided. Moreover, the ELADS court expressed a recognition that the prosecution must have an effective mechanism to comply with its Brady obligation. Having to file a Brady Pitches motion in every case in which every officer is going to testify is very onerous and can result in delaying cases where the defense would not bother to file such a motion because the officer's credibility may not, be, may not matter to the defense. As pointed out in Johnson, if the defense does not intend to challenge an officer's credibility, it might reasonably choose not to bring a Pitches motion. But the prosecution would know this. So requiring us to seek this information on the defendant's behalf would essentially force the Pitches procedure to be employed in most, if not all, criminal cases, including all of those in which the defense has no need for the impeaching material. The Pitches procedure should be reserved for cases in which officers' credibility is or might be actually at issue rather than essentially mandating it in all cases. So, in other words, if we can't disclose it to defense, we end up, according to the Supreme Court in Johnson, and I think correctly, uh, having to file pitches motions for virtually every officer in every case, which is a far greater invasion of their privacy than if you were to limit it to those cases where the defense planned on actually challenging uh, their honesty or impeaching them in some way. Now, granted, Johnson was not addressing the exact question of whether providing a Brady to the defense was proper, but the reasoning is the same. Requiring prosecutors to comply with the, the Pitches statute in every case involving an office from a Brady alert was provided to the prosecution will prevent the prosecution from effectively and pr practically fulfilling its Brady obligation. So for these reasons, I think it's likely that the provision of such alerts to the defense should be held to be proper. I should point out, though, that on the off chance a court may decide differently than what we speculate, CDA will likely be proposing legislation adding language to Section 832.7 that will specifically permit the prosecution to disclose the Brady alerts to the defense. All right, on to another question. Under 832.7a, even before that statute, which again is the one of the pitcher statutes, even before it was amended by SB 1421, there was an exception allowing prosecutors to directly access officer personnel files in certain circumstances. Specifically, the general bar against us accessing those files without filing a pitcher's motion did not apply to investigations or proceedings concerning the conduct of peace officers. Uh, conducted by a grand jury, a district attorney's office, or the attorney general's office. Now, when Johnson, the California Supreme Court, had held this exception, did not allow the prosecution to review personal records of police officer witnesses for Brady material without complying with pitches. They said that checking for Brady material is not an investigation for purposes of this investigation exception. They said a police officer doesn't become a target of the investigation merely by being a witness in a criminal case. Now, it seems like this language from Johnson would militate against allowing the Brady tip provide, provided in ALEDs to be provided. Did the decision in ALEDs change how prosecutors should view the scope of this investigation's exception? Well, in ALEDs, the California Supreme Court certainly softened its position that the investigation exception did not allow prosecutors seeking to meet their Brady obligation access to personnel file. The court acknowledged the argument that its analysis of the investigative exception 
could apply to prevent Brady alerts since Brady alerts communicates information obtained from confidential records, which we discussed before. Nevertheless, the ELETS court decided that law enforcement agency could provide Brady alerts to prosecutions, uh, to prosecutors. In explaining why Brady alerts were permitted, the ELETS court appeared to put the scope of the investigation's exception once again in play and backtracked from its analysis in Johnson, at least when it came to files that contained potential Brady information. Specifically, after noting that the relationship between the term confidential and the investigative exception was not beyond debate, the ELADS court stated, Johnson inferred that because there is an exception to confidentiality for investigations, the Pitch's statutes otherwise limits investigators, specifically prosecutors, access to confidential information. But an exception aimed at investigation need not imply anything about whether investigators can view confidential material. For example, the exception could concern prosecutors' ability to share information with others when an investigation is ongoing. Moreover, even if the investigation's exception does imply that prosecutors lack unlimited access to confidential records during ordinary criminal cases, the exception could be understood to set a floor on prosecutorial access rather than, as in Johnson, a ceiling. Now, we need not embrace either of these interpretations to conclude that Johnson's approach is not compelled by the statutory text and should not be reflexively extended without considering defendants' due process rights. Okay, so that's from the decision. The ELADS court then went on to find that disclosure of Brady alerts to prosecutors were permissible, even if the investigative exception is the only basis on which prosecutors may directly access underlying confidential records without a pitches motion. The court reasoned that while the pitches statute may shield the fact that an officer has been disciplined from disclosure to the public at large, the mere fact of discipline disclosed merely to prosecutors raises less significant privacy concerns than the underlying records at issue in Johnson. So did the ALADS court then abrogate its earlier language in Johnson regarding what the scope was of the investigation's exception. No, ultimately they didn't. They declined to revisit whether prosecutors may directly access underlying records or perhaps a subset of those records. So in light of this apparent backtracking that was going on in ALATS, do you think prosecutors should be trying to use this exception to insist on seeing personnel files to meet their Brady obligations if no Brady tip is being provided to them? Well, to a certain extent, the opening of personnel files under SB 1421 may largely obviate the need to use the investigative exception. For now, we don't know if we can use this exception, but even if we did, we might have to still do a Brady Pitches motion to disclose any information we find to the defense, since the ALEDS court did not suggest that information obtained pursuant to the investigation's exception by prosecutors could be provided to the defense without complying with the Pitches statutes. Given the change, of course, regarding the scope of investigations, exceptions, and ALADs, neither law enforcement nor prosecutors should assume that the exception will continue to be interpreted in a way that bars prosecutors from directly reviewing the file for Brady evidence or even potentially other less material impeachment evidence. But whatever prosecutors want to push the envelope and insist on checking for Brady info in an officer's file under investigation exception when an agency declines to provide a Brady tip, well, that's another question. David, to get an in-camera review under Pitches, the motion has to be supported by affidavits showing good cause for the discovery, which means basically the, the, the attorney has to show that the information sought is relevant to the pending charges and explain how this materiality requirement will be met. 
the attorney's got to be able to state upon reasonable belief that the agency has the records or information at issue. Assuming that we can provide the defense with a Brady tip, will that be sufficient information without you know, the nature of the specific impeachment sought being identified for the defense to obtain an in-camera review? Yes, it definitely should be in both Johnson and in ALADS. In ALADS, the court stated the requisite reasonable belief exists when a movement declares that the agency from which the movement seeks records has placed the officer at issue on a Brady list. And I know that there's another case out there from 2017 called Serrano, which said the same thing, that the, that the basically the Brady tip will be sufficient. Yes. Will the Brady tip from law enforcement to the prosecution also allow the prosecution to make the requisite showing without the specific misconduct being identified. Yeah, it should be. In that same case of Serrano uh, that you alluded to, the court noted it would be nonsensical to require the prosecution to allege that an officer who's part of the prosecution team and intended witness engaged in a specific act of misconduct. So, and if for some reason the court, a particular court you're in front of says, well, look, I want more of a showing, you should presumably be able to support your good cause by asserting any of the following, for example, uh, that you need, uh, that it's necessary for you to review it to avoid the possibility the defense will end up in possession of information never disclosed to the prosecution that could be used to sandbag a prosecution peace officer witness. It's also necessary to help ensure the prosecution has all the information it needs to decide whether to rely on the officer's testimony. For example, in cases where the evidence of the defendant's guilt relies heavily on the credibility of an officer, uh, the information might be useful in helping determine whether to proceed with the prosecution or not, or enter into plea negotiations, or dismiss the case, or so on. In other words, if you're relying on the honesty of the officer, you want to make sure you have all the information needed to determine whether you uh, should rely on them. This is especially true when the prosecution is aware that the defendant will be challenging the truthfulness of an officer's report. And three, it's necessary to help ensure that the information in the file is presented to the defense so that there can be no later claim that the defense counsel provided ineffective assistance of counsel by failing to file a Brady Pitches motion. Because, of course, it doesn't do our victims any good if the case is reversed later due to IAC uh, or any other reason. Okay. Now, as you mentioned before, SB 1421 rendered certain kinds of information in the personnel files non-confidential. In light of ALED's findings that records under 832.7b are not confidential, are there no protections for these records that are deemed non-confidential? No, the, the, there remain some protections. The ALADS courts claim that it did not mean to suggest that non-confidential records must be fully disclosed at any time under the California Public Records Act. The court observed that uh, as amended, Penal Code Section 832.7 contemplates that it may be appropriate for an agency to redact records or to delay disclosure to avoid interverse, interference with certain investigations or enforcement proceedings. Can the defense obtain the officer personnel records described in 832.7b directly from law enforcement without having to go through the prosecution to obtain them? Oh, yes. On its face, the statute provides those records shall not be confidential and should be available for public inspection pursuant to the California Public Records Act. So, I mean, anyone can do that, much less the defense attorney. But didn't SB 1421 also add the subdivision to uh, 832.7 saying that the law does not supersede or affect the criminal discovery process that's outlined in Penal Code Section 1054? 
Yes, but ALADS considered that subdivision beside the point, probably because while Penal Code Section 1054E precludes courts from broadening the scope of discovery uh, beyond that provided in the chapter or other express statutory provisions or by the Constitution, subdivision B of Section 832.7 is an express statutory provision. All right. Can the prosecution, can the defense or the prosecution for that matter, obtain the findings or recommended findings of IA investigators or investigations that are kept in the personnel records that are described in 832.7b? Well, under the pitch, pitch scheme, the judge decide or the judge, a judge deciding what information in an officer's personnel f- records must be disclosed is prevented from disclosing the conclusion of any officer investigate complaint. Uh, uh, filed pursuant to 832.5. In other words, they have to give the evidence but not opinions. Moreover, while not specifically required by statute, after a court finds good cause for disclosure at a pitches motion, the court typically discloses only the names and addresses and phone numbers of any prior complainants and witnesses and the dates of the incidents in question. However, much more information is disclosable pursuant to post SB 1421 section 83. 832.7b requests, because that includes, uh, quote, documents setting forth findings or recommended findings and copies of disciplinary records relating to the incidents. You're just going to get a lot more of the records uh, uh, post-1421 than you would usually get under traditional pitches ruling. Okay. So like the conclusions of investigators and conclusions of the administrative uh, proceedings. Correct. But would evidence of an administrative finding or conclusion regarding peace officer misconduct even be admissible in evidence? Well, it shouldn't be. Although an officer may potentially be impeached with the conduct, right, the conduct of what they did, mm-hmm. uh, the administrative finding is really just an opinion. The finding or conclusion itself should be excluded on the ground of hearsay and, in effect, impermissible lay opinion regarding whether the conduct occurred. Even prior convictions would be considered inadmissible hearsay when offered to impeach, but for the fact of evidence code section 788, which creates a specific hearsay exception for that purpose uh, when it comes to felony convictions, and but for the fact that evidence code 452.5 uh, creates a hearsay exception uh, allowing admission of qualifying court records to prove not only the fact of conviction. All right. Well, let's get to a big question. If law enforcement agencies do decline to provide Brady tips to the prosecution, can, must, or should the prosecutor's office use this new version of 832.7b to directly obtain that information uh, in the officer's personnel record? And before you answer it, I just want to make it clear that that we are not uh, speaking on behalf of the office in this regard. This is just our uh, opinions uh, Take them for what they're worth. Yeah, for a take on the law. Look, I think there's really, despite having just said that, I think there's no doubt that a prosecution can use 832.7. I mean, because anyone in the public can use them. Uh, Defense attorneys, but literally anyone. So, of course, prosecutors uh, would be able to use it as well. So what about whether prosecutors' offices must use Section 832.7b? Do they have an obligation to use it to get this information? Well, that's a trickier question. Whether the prosecution must request records uh, identified in subdivision B is a different question of whether they can. Even assuming there's a duty to a certain Brady information in personnel files of peace officers who will be testifying as witnesses in a criminal case, it's unlikely there would be a constitutional duty to request the records 
uh, identified in subdivision B because the defense has equal access to those records through the exercise of due diligence. That said, as discussed earlier, the California Supreme Court in ALADS did strongly suggest that if Brady alerts were not provided, there must be some mechanism for law enforcement to provide the information to the prosecution. While the court did not directly state that law enforcement agencies must create Brady lists or must provide Brady alerts to the prosecution, uh, my personal belief is that Brady lists and alerts are the only practical means of meeting the strongly suggested obligation. Nonetheless, nevertheless, some risk-tolerant law enforcement agencies may choose not to grade Brady lists or provide any Brady tips to the prosecutor's office. If that is not done, it became, might become more imperative that prosecutors utilize Section 832.7b to capture the information. In other words, if there's Brady lists, you probably don't need 832.7b. But if for some reason your law enforcement agencies won't give you those lists, then this might be a necessary tool to get the information. All right. So if prosecutors can, but not necessarily must use 832.7b, should they do so? Well, that we've kind of alluded to that. Should they do it is a different question. The answer is that question will likely depend on whether the district attorney believes ALADS has imposed or set the stage for imposing on prosecutors a general duty to seek out Brady material in the officer's personnel file, whether the district attorney office has set up an alternative mechanism, such as a Brady tip system, to obtain the information, in which case, if you have that, you really probably have no need for 832.7, uh, um, and whether the uh, district attorney believes that efforts in utilizing Section 8032.7b uh, to request the records is or is not worth the payoff in the information gained. Uh, so, in other words, as a practical matter, do you think this is actually going to help you with what you need to do, which is to get the relevant information to disclose uh, or use in your own case? Now, if there's no other way of capturing the information, prosecutors may well want to consider making requests uh, pursuant to 832.7b. Granted, this strategy will not necessarily capture all potential Brady evidence in a peace officer's file. However, almost all information of in a personnel file that might reasonably be characterized as Brady material will be captured by seeking this information. And there's no question that it can be relieved, uh, revealed to the defense as necessary without having to file any additional motions under the Pitches statute. Penal Code Section 832.7 does not allow for disclosure of frivolous or unfounded complaints, but let's be honest, such complaints will rarely be deemed material, let alone favorable evidence for Brady purposes. However, whatever the decision, there are two significant considerations that should be taken into account when deciding whether to request the records described in Subdivision B. What's the first? Well, the first is the potential problem that arises if the defense makes the request and the prosecution does not. Well, then we're at a big disadvantage should significant impeachment evidence exist in the file, as the defense will be able to sandbag uh, the prosecution by bringing up the impeachment with no advance notice on cross-examination. And, and frankly, I think that's even a bigger danger when it's um, uh, erroneous or false impeachment information because you'll have no ability – you'll have to respond to that on the fly in front of the jury. So that's a, that's a big danger. What's the second uh, concern? Well, the second concern is almost the opposite problem. The defense doesn't try to obtain the evidence. Now, if the evidence is available by way of request – uh, pursuant to Section 832.7b, and there is Brady material in that file, and neither the prosecution nor the defense obtain it, there will not be a Brady violation, but there is probably going to be an ineffective assistance of counsel uh, claim. 
So if 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 we don't look for it and the defense doesn't look for it and it's there, you put your conviction at great risk. If law enforcement agencies decline to provide Brady tips, can the prosecution utilize the investigations exception under 832.7a as modified by SB 1421 to obtain the information in the peace officer's personnel record? Well, when if you had asked me before ADLADS, I would have said clearly no. Uh, because the investigative exception only implied to when you're investigating the officer, but ALADS does muddy those waters. Um, I, I think given the uncertainty of the scope of that exception, as we discussed earlier, using Section 832.7b is undoubtedly the easier path. Does the passage of SB 1421 relieve the prosecution of any duty to disclose Brady information known to the prosecution that is accessible to the defense by way of the public records request uh, Described in uh, Penal Code Section 832.7b. Well, I, I think uh, I think the amendments. Look, I think the amendments to 832.7b that gives public access is likely going to moot many of these issues uh, because you're going to give equal access to the uh, defense as, as to the prosecution, and okay. since they have access to it, it's very easy to do. It's not likely to be a Brady violation, but. If those records are described, are deemed to be in possession of the prosecution because the information in the record happens to be actually known to the prosecutor or maybe even uh, any prosecutor in the office, failure to disclose the information may constitute a statutory violation. And this we discussed earlier. As a practical matter, it's very hard to see how you uh, comply with that without a Brady list for those reasons. But there's nothing in the language of Section 1054.1 that renders the duty to disclose statutory designated discovery evidence uh, a nullity if that evidence is known and reasonable accessible to the defense. Indeed, the case law indicates the contrary. Can prosecutors, uh, I'm sorry, can officers object to the release of information in their personnel files pursuant to a government records request made under 832.7b without uh, without there being a judicial determination, release is proper on state privacy grounds. In other words, can they make that argument, hey, we have a state privacy right in our personnel records, and so if you want this information, even under this new subdivision B of 832.7, there still has to be a judicial determination that the need out for, for the records outweighs our state privacy right in our employment records. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. One of the peculiar results of SB 1421 is that the personnel records of officers went from being subject to greater protection than almost everyone else's personnel files to be given less protection than almost everyone else's personnel records. Uh, so I would not be surprised if some peace officers seek to prevent disclosure of the information uh, without at least a judicial determination that disclosure of the records outweighs their uh, state privacy rights. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there, it's pretty clear that there is a state constitutional right of privacy in uh, personnel records in general. And uh, this is because, you know, social norms dictate what is determined to be confidential uh, or private under the state constitutional right. And it's pretty well established that personnel records are something that shouldn't be disclosed just to the general public. Um, and I can see these officers pretty much arguing that, hey, you know, the state constitutional right of privacy trumps any attempt by the legislature to reduce that right of privacy by passing a mere statute. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that claim being made. And in some ways, I think this is yet more evidence that we discussed before where it's better to do this through a Brady list and, and uh, 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 the system that uh, we articulated. But I guess the answer to that argument uh, is that, look, every piece of information in someone's uh, personnel record doesn't become a personnel record just because it's housed there or filed there. And the state privacy right exists when well-established social norms recognize the need to maximize individual control of this information. And really, in some ways, I think it's pretty clear that it, it, that there's either shifting social norms or there's really never a notional, social norm protecting disclosure of the conduct of a police officer engaged in a police shooting or a sexual assault or acts of dishonesty. Yeah, so basically, I mean, what is being released, it's true, it's in a personnel record, but it's not the kind of personnel record that has been typically given protection under the state privacy right. I mean, it's not there are the, the statute doesn't allow for the release of like personal information about the officer, biographical information, things like that, which we normally think of of as the kind of information that's protected by a personnel record. And in fact, there are a couple of appellate cases out there holding there is no violation of a police officer's constitutional right of privacy uh, because the privilege granted by the Pitches statute is conditional, and the statutory scheme makes it clear that the right to privacy in those records is limited. And moreover, we actually have another argument to say we get those records even over a claim that there's a violation of the state privacy right, because there's case law which indicates that when they provide the information to us, when we access it, it's not the same kind of intrusion on their privacy right as if it would be disclosed to the general public or the defense counsel in general. Um, and even if these arguments fail, that they're – okay, so yeah, there is a state constitutional privacy right. That doesn't mean we, we wouldn't get the records because the federal due process right of discovery under Brady is going to outweigh the state privacy right in the records. Correct. So the judge may just to say, okay, well, yeah, I have to review them, but you would ultimately be able to uh, get these records. Anyway, we'll see if that claim is made. Uh, if it is in the attached IPG, we give arguments uh, both, way, both ways. All right. So let me ask this. Does either the ALADS decision or SB 1421 have any impact on the confidentiality of criminal history records of officers? Oh, yes. Uh, to answer that question, listeners must understand that criminal records of officers are not per se protected by the Pitches statute, and they are likely but not certainly in pos the possession of prosecutors. The question of whether prosecutors are in constructive possession of information that might impeach an officer contained in criminal history database, like a rap sheet, is a different question than whether prosecutors are in constructive possession of peace officer personnel files. In other words, this information is in two different locations. One's a personnel file. The other is uh, criminal offender information. Now, the only published cases to hint that information about police officers maintained in a criminal history database is off limits, absent compliance with Pitch's scheme, is a case of Garden Grove Police Department v. Superior Court. Now, what happened in that case? Well, in that case, the defendant asked the district attorney to run criminal records checks on the officer involved in the defendant's arrest. 
uh, you know, basically to provide any information concerning crimes of moral turpitude. The defense also sought specific acts of misconduct or other acts done under color of authority in order to impeach the credibility of the officer. When the district attorney cl- declined, the defendant filed the motion uh, requesting the information. The cr- trial court ordered the district attorney to run the criminal record check on the officer. And because the office, the DA needed the officer's date of birth to run the criminal records check, the judge ordered the police department to disclose the birth dates to the district attorney. So that set the stage. The judge left the determination whether the evidence was ultimately discoverable for later. Now, the police department filed a writ of mandate seeking to vacate the order requiring it to disclose the officer's birth dates to the district attorney. Uh, the appellate court granted the writ, finding the trial court abused its discretion when it ordered the police department to disclose the birth dates uh, to, the, to the DA for the purposes of running a rap sheet. Garden Grove, therefore, may be read to, as generally condemning the running of police officers' criminal records absent compliance with the Pitches procedure would indicate that such records... Which would indicate, right? Yes, exactly. That that, that they're third-party records. Exactly. But it's more plausible to read it as standing only for the proposition that seeking access to information about peace officer dates of birth requires compliance with the Pitches procedure. And you have People v. Little, which is a 1997 case, that uh, the court held that information contained in databases that are reasonably accessible to members of the prosecution office is in constructive possession of the prosecution team. However, the finding in Little was specifically based on the fact that when it came to DOJ rap sheets, the information in the rap sheet was reasonably accessible to the prosecution. Thus, the argument and really the reality is since most prosecutors are not in constructive possession of the criminal history of police officers since we're not in constructive possession of their dates of birth. So we can't really get access to the rap sheet without that. Well, that's one argument. Well, a more plausible argument is that the rap sheets are in our possession, since in many instances the prosecution can inject an officer's criminal record without having the officer's birth date. For example, if the officer's name is unique or by narrowing down the list of potential candidates with the same name based on race, ethnicity, approximate age, I mean, the same way we often do these things. It may take longer to conduct a search, but such searches are routinely conducted for witnesses when we don't know their dates of birth. Moreover, if the lack of date of birth for a police officer witness places an officer's rap sheet outside the constructive possession of the prosecution, then this lack of date of birth about any witness would place the witness's rap sheet outside the constructive possession of the prosecution. And, you know, come on, that's a very dubious proposition, uh, especially given the case of People v. Martinez from 2002, which rejected the argument that failure to disclose prosecution witness criminal history was excusable on the grounds the prosecution did not have the witness's date of birth and the witness had a common name. So what impact, if any, will SB 1421 or the ALED's decision have on prosecutorial access to the arrest records of police officers? Well, I don't think much. Uh, Although if there is an inability to run a rap sheet on a police officer and information contained in the files accessible by way of a request pursuant to Penal Code Section 832.7b would overlap with or reveal a criminal history, SB 1421 might allow discovery of a crime that would not otherwise be accessible to the prosecution. All right, Dave. Uh, I think I've run out of questions. Well, I've definitely run out of answers. Well, in that case, I'm going to tell our listeners... Goodbye for now until the next IPG podcast. All right, then why don't you do that? Okay. Listeners, thanks for listening. Goodbye until the next podcast. (laughs) 